Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I wanted to speak a little bit tonight about the nature of Kirtan, which we've just participated in and which we engage in here on on a daily basis. And um, in order to do so, I will refer us to the Bhagavad Gita. You're familiar with Bhagavad Gita to some extent, right? It's, of course, a famous text. It's uh, probably the most widely circulated of the uh, sacred revelation of the East, the Hindus' sacred books, um, maybe comparative to uh, comparable com- to the Bible of the, the Hindus, if you will, to, as much as the Bible is such a central book for the uh, Christian sect. Um, of course, it's just one at the same time of, 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 of a large and per- perhaps the most voluminous body of uh, sacred literature and revelation, the Eastern revelation that predates the Western biblical uh, revelation. And um, and as much as we can make a comparison in that way, the books are quite uh, different as well. Gita, and the Bible, that is. The Bible is much about believing and uh, the Gita is about the nature of being. Hmm. That's just a general <laughs> difference, and that doesn't uh, mean that believing isn't good, and uh, that, that doesn't have something to do with the nature of, of being it does. But um, with regard to the subject, the chosen subject, if you will, if you will allow me, tonight of Kirtan, we'll turn to the text in the Gita, one of the important texts where Kirtan is mentioned. We go to the ninth chapter. The book consists of 18 chapters. So the uh, ninth chapter is right in the middle. And uh, sometimes if you want to hide something, you put it in the middle of the book. And so it happens at the middle of the book, ninth chapter is uh, entitled, in Sanskrit, the, the Yoga of Hidden Treasure. The, book, the chapter uh, begins with the statement, Rajavidya, Rajaguhyam. Raj means king, vidya means knowledge, and guhyam means secret. So Krishna tells his uh, student, friend, uh, the warrior Arjun, that now I would like to speak to you about the king of knowledge and the king of secrets, secret knowledge, hmm? the most secret knowledge. And... Uh, As the chapter plays out, this is the middle. Again, uh, it's 18 chapters, so in another way, it's also divided into the first six, the middle six, and the last six. first six chapters uh, explain the yoga psychology. And um, also, it addresses half of the of a very famous uh, aphorism from the Upanishads, Tattvam Asi, Tattvam Asi, Tattvam Asi. In this aphorism, Tvam, the word Tvam means you. It says you are Tat. Tat means in one sense that, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
How can you be that? You are you, and that is that. So, <laughs> a better reading is, you are his. That we belong to somebody. We're a part. And um, classically, the parts are considered feminine, and the whole is considered male. So we're we're feminine, and that's not a bad thing. It's good, and he's the whole. And these are just obviously the text transcends gender differentiations and so forth. But um, uh, the he is the maintainer, the sustainer, and we are sustained and maintained. Something like that. So, the first six chapters are about Twum. They're about us, about you. It's a pretty attractive opening to get your attention. Six chapters all about you, what you're like. And uh, among other things, it says, we are amazing. Hmm. Um, basically, it explains that that something about ourselves that's kind of lost in, in the shuffle of everyday life. And that is the fact that that uh, that we are the observer and matter is observed. And as such, we are an experiencer and matter is experienced. Mm-hmm. And while we have many experiences in relation to matter, we often lose sight of the fact that it's the most extraordinary thing about us in one sense is that we are an experiencer rather than something that's just experienced. In other words, follow me if you will, we're, fought, we're experiencing matter. We experience this about matter, that about matter through our tactile sense, through our sense of hearing, through our sense of sight, taste, and so forth. We experience something about the nature of matter. and We're caught up with fleeting experiences as to what's out there. Hmm. And almost forgetful of what's in there that's doing the experiencing and how extraordinary an experiential reality is in comparison to a non-experiential reality that is only experienced. The difference between these two is like the difference between night and day, between land and water. So, sometimes I'm asked, what's the most profound experience you had had? And sometimes I reply, the fact that, I'm, that I experience. That's very profound compared to everything in matter, compared to things, if you will. The best things in life are not things. <laughs> so, they're, they're you, which is not a thing and it's not a thought either. We're not a thing or a thought. We transcend, the Gita teaches, things and thoughts, mind and matter. Mind is a category of matter, psychic matter and physical matter. And then there's us. So while it says we're amazing, it also, the first chapter, six chapters, also deconstructs largely the false sense of self that we have, where we think, I'm this or I am that, and lose sight of the fact that I am. Because this and that changes. I might be American, and I might that might be what, what I am, in one respect, but I might, North American, but I might decide to flee the country and live in Costa Rica and become a Costa Rican. Hmm. So I was an American, North American, now I could be a Central American. You could be a man and have a, um, um, what's it called? A new gen- reassign your gender. I need the right language, right? But, uh, and, and, and become a woman, mm-hmm. right? So there's, I could be this or I could be that. And we're caught up thinking, I am this, I am that. And then this and that is always changing. What's lost in the shuffle, again, is that the bigger thing that I am that doesn't change. I am, that's for sure. And I'm really not this or that, because that's always changing. 
but that I am. That's wonderful. That's extraordinary. And what if I'm not this or that? What does it mean that I am? Hmm? So I'm beyond things, beyond thoughts. And in this sense, I, you and I, we're all wonderful. But again, it's flattering in one sense. Hmm? Um, but it's true. Hmm? And truth is also sometimes painful. So in order to arrive at the truth experientially that I am in deep yogic experience we have to deconstruct the present identity that is an acquired one and that is constantly in change in flux in this body I might be a human next life I might be a bird it's possible or a bush. Hmm? Not the bush family, I mean. I hope not. Personally. <laughs> so, point being that the matter is constantly in flux. It turns into bushes, it turns into, into, into birds, um, and into human beings, and something's driving that changing matter, and that's consciousness. And we are consciousness. So yoga is about understanding that. And and when we do, when we get it theoretically, then we embark upon the path of to experience it, which is bold, it's courageous, it's quite an adventure, because, again, along the way, you have to deconstruct the ego. The, 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 the conventional ego I am this or I am that and it's not that easy hmm. so with good company and repeatedly kind of rethinking the idea from this way and that way and then, and then engaging in transrational practices practices that transcend reason like kirtan it's not a rational process practice it's not irrational but it picks up where reason leaves off and it can take us beyond the limits of reason hmm? so there's some reasoning of this nature if you will as to the shortcomings of reason hmm? as to the nature of the self that transcends things and thoughts this is what we find in the first six chapters which helps us then to enter into the second six chapters which is now about him you are his so there was the, about you, and now there's about him. In other words, the theological section of the Gita, the middle six chapters. Hmm. Now, he says a lot of nice things about himself, so it maybe requires a little believing. We talked about the difference between nature of being as opposed to be, believing, but he's given good grounds for believing when you hear about the nature of the self in ways that you hadn't thought about it before or couldn't couldn't grasp it, what it says about you that, 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 that answers to your human common sensibility that there's more to you than what meets the eye and the mind. There's more to life than what meets the eye and the mind. And it's you. Wow. What am I? What are the possibilities on land compared to the possibilities in water? So what are the possibilities in the realm of consciousness itself, unfettered by thoughts and things? as compared to consciousness trying to make its way in relation to things and thoughts only, hmm, which are constantly in flux and so forth, as I say. So so the middle six chapters, Krishna begins to speak about himself. Hmm. First six chapters is about you and then about, about him, about you and you are his. What is he like? Hmm. If we're the part, the spark, uh, that might get obscured by the smoke. Hmm. What is the fire that we need to connect with that we'll be able to easily dispel the smoke and know ourselves for what we are and what all are and experience the fullness of our potential as a spark of consciousness. Hmm. So the middle six chapters, we're now in the middle of the middle six chapters. And here he's said a few things about himself 
it seems like he's talking about himself, but in one sense he's not. What he's really talking about here is bhakti. But bhakti, love, has an object. In love there are two things. There's the love itself, the lover, and the object of love in which the lover reposes her love. The two, the object of love and the love, they correspond with one another. And you really can't have one without the other. You can't even have an object of love without anyone loving it. And you can't love without an object of love. You can't have a teacher without students. You can't have students without teacher for there to be any meaning to the two terms, student and teacher. At the same time, there's a difference between the student and the teacher, even though they're interdependent upon one another. So there's an interdependence, in one sense, between the object of love and the love. Hmm? They're one, and somehow, transrationally, if you will, they're different. The same thing goes, how can you be one and different at the same time? Hmm? Well, it is our practical experience that life transcends reason. For example, by reason, logic, I think we might conclude that if you have ten and you give away five, you now have less. But our experience in life is is that if we give, we become more. We can't even hardly talk about it, but <laughs> but when we give, we feel that we have grown. Our self has expanded in some way that becomes attractive to others as well. And that, that there's a kind of getting that that is, as we say in common English parlance, that to give is to receive. That doesn't make a lot of sense. In one sense, right? Give means you you have less now, but the giving is actually getting. This is something we say, but the implications of it are very uh, deep and far-reaching. So if we are a unit of consciousness, a spark, and we have a capacity to love, we need an object of love. We need, in the realm of consciousness, a significant consciousness other, if you will, to love. So Krishna says, well... I want to now, I've talked about you, now I want to talk about love, about bhakti. But I can't talk about bhakti without talking about myself. I don't like to talk about myself. I'm a, I'm a nice enough person, and you know, it's not you know, the most polite thing to just boast and talk about yourself. So he's really not talking about himself. He's talking about bhakti. But in the context of bhakti, he just happens to come into the picture. And so... That's how to understand some of the statements in the, in the text. Hmm. Um, turns out he's quite it's quite a charming perspective. He's quite a, a, a nice fellow, hmm. Krishna, hmm. <laughs> a gentleman, witty, hmm. insightful, hmm. and he says here in this middle section of the middle, middle of the middle, right? Mm-hmm. That now I want to talk to you, Arjun, about the end of knowledge, the king of knowledge, in the most secret of secrets. And in one sense, the secret is that love is the end of knowledge. Mm-hmm. That in loving, there's a kind of knowing that is complete. When you don't need any other baggage of knowing that you might just regurgitate to make yourself feel better in some circles. Oh, I know this, or I could talk about that. It's a kind of a knowing and loving that uh, can bring you even even to silence. Hmm. 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 Or a meditative silence in which you only talk about that which you cannot say enough about, the object of your love. Hmm. So this is the idea of kirtan. There's an idea, philosophically, 
within Hindu schools of thought and spiritual practice that if you're full, then why move? The fact that we're moving indicates that we're not full. Hmm? We have some need, some want. Therefore, we're moving in order to fulfill it. And so the idea in such schools is that stop wanting. Let's take the Buddha, for example. The Buddha's teaching is desire, thirst for, for things, is the cause of all suffering. Well, it is. It's very practical. If you want something, well, you've got a problem. <laughs> you've got to go and get it. You've got to work to get it. Hmm? And, of course, whatever it is you may get in this world, you can't keep. So even if you like it, the fact that you can't keep it makes it that much more problematic. So, in other words, that which you acquire in pursuit of fulfillment is the very source of your misery because there's misery to get it. You've got to work to get it. And then once you get it, you can't keep it. So you liked it a lot, but you can't hold on to it. It has to change hands. So, so the wisdom of the Buddha, Buddha is sit. Don't just do something. Sit there. <laughs> All right? And... His whole idea is end suffering. End suffering. The world is about suffering. Bring an end to it. So, in that school of thought, there's a lot of wisdom to that. And it says, again, basically, the movement is a symptom of not being full. But in the bhakti school, there's another idea. We accept that. But then we also say something else. This is what the Gita says. And this is kind of secret in a sense, because it's pretty profound what the Buddha says. And it could, like, stop all movement if you got it. Like, whoa, that's right. Holy cow. Hmm? Just stop right there, and the world stops for somebody, right, who gets it. What more could be said, so to speak? It's kind of like, whoa, action, thoughts, Stop. Sit. So a good number of schools, they advocate this idea. It's a good idea. Shanti, shanti, shanti. Peace, peace, peace. But the bhakti school here, Krishna speaking himself, and he says... I've got some secret knowledge. That knowledge is, is, is itself is confidential, the Buddhist knowledge. Now here's some more confident, even more confidential knowledge. This is a secret. What is that? That there's a kind of movement that arises out of fullness. There's movement that arises out of emptiness, but there's another kind of movement that arises out of fullness if you're really full then there's a kind of movement that's celebratory of your fullness, like dancing. Hmm? Not because you want anything, need anything, but because you need, to, you need to dance only because you're so full of joy that you dance. So there's movement out of fullness. Hmm? And the, the term in the bhakti tradition for this is lila as opposed to movement out of emptiness, which is called karma. Hmm? We're moving in relation to things in karma, and, we, and we've taken from the environment to get them, and so we owe. Because you've taken, you owe, and so off to work you go. It's obligatory. Whereas in, in between that and Leela, there's sitting still, peace, unity, consciousness. And now you've, you're standing on the ground of being, you're sitting on the ground of being, and now there's a possibility of dancing on that ground of being. Movement of Leela. Hmm? So Kirtan is coming from that place because it involves movement. It is, it's, 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 uh, 
uh, a, a, a really, ultimately it is an expression of the um, ecstasy of the devotee. Now, you can do it in practice, so practice of a good thing, imitation of a good thing is a good thing. Hmm. Something like that. <laughs> right? There's a stage of bhakti, which is bhakti in practice, and then there's bhakti in ecstasy. So there's a, an emotive aspect to bhakti that kicks in as the false self is deconstructed, the real self comes out, and in connection with the power of bhakti, it can realize and express itself emotionally in relation to the absolute. Hmm? And kirtan is such an expression. There are different kinds of kirtan. Nam kirtan, like we just did, chanting the names. There's lila kirtan. Kirtan describing the lilas of Krishna, the play. Lila means play. Hmm? God is omniscient and omnipresent. Knows everything and is everywhere. Sounds good, but it's a problem because if you're everywhere, you know everything. Could be boring. Nothing to do. Nowhere to go. You already know what will happen. Hmm? There's nowhere to go. You're already everywhere. <laughs> so what do you do when you're bored? Then you play. Hmm? So Krishna is that form of the Absolute that transcends omniscience. transcends omnipresence, transcends omniscience, because, as I said earlier, Krishna is saying here that there's a kind of knowing that love is constituted of. Hmm? It's beyond omniscience. To be omniscient is not necessarily the knowledge of loving, <laughs> right? Hmm? It's kind of a problem for loving. So there's a feature of the God that transcends the classical idea of God. The omniscient, the omnipresent, om, worshipful, so forth. And this is the playful aspect of the Godhead who affords association with himself in intimacy. Hmm? which is expressed in all the forms of love that we know in this world, like friendly love, parental love, romantic love, rather than just reverential love. Hmm? And when we have that kind of love, friendly love or romantic love, for example, then it's not uncommon in this world, to use an example, that we might sing about in the shower, about... Our, 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 our beloved. Or we might hear any song and interpret it hmm, in relation to our, our, our love. He's like that, she's like that. Yes, yes. Hmm. So this kirtan, you see, it's a very playful uh, um, method, if you will, to the madness of, of bhakti, um, samadhi, in, in lila, hmm, entering into the lila. It comes from a very high place, Golokeru Premodhan Harinam Sankirtan, from the realm of Lila and the playful Lila of Krishna. It's exported here, so to speak. Hmm? It's constituted of a sh particular Shakti of Krishna, the power of Krishna. Hmm? The power, the his own inherent power, if you will, hmm? that, that governs his inner world. Hmm? It's an expression of that. Hmm? So it comes through sadhus, sadhus, saints, hmm? the kirtan. Hmm? And, of course, in our lineage, we follow the, 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 the embodiment of kirtan himself, uh, Sri Krishna Chaitanya. Hmm? Uh, who taught the style of kirtan that we experienced um, tonight. But, about kirtan, the Gita says this, Satatam kirtayam tomam itantascha dhridhavrataha namasyantascha mam bhaktya nityukta upasate. Again, 
this is Krishna now, talking about the secret of secrets, bhakti, being the end of knowledge, and here he's talking about an expression of that knowledge that is characteristic of his devotees. Prior to this verse, he says, um, he says, Mahatmanas tuman pratadaivim prakutyamashrita. There are people in this world, he says, I call them Mahatmas. Atma means the, the unit of consciousness that we are, and Maha means great. They are great souls. Now, what makes one soul great and one soul not great? Hmm? All souls are supposed to be equal. Hmm? They are. But those that are giving are great. Hmm? Those that are taking are small. Hmm? In other words, it's a qualitative measurement. It's not a quantitative measurement. It's not like the soul gets bigger in size and it gets smaller in size. But as I said earlier, it's like we feel and are bigger when we give. Hmm? So the self tends to expand in terms of its identification by giving. When we give, as Kennedy said years ago in our country, in my country, Think not what you can do for yourself, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So that the giving idea expands now, like it becomes, the self becomes identified with the country. Mm-hmm. Hmm? What's good for the country, that's good for me. Hmm? What I can do for the country, that will be. So now yourself is identified with the whole country, it's expanded. It's just a political, nationalistic example. We can go beyond that, a universal example, to the highest ideal mentioned in the Gita of giving and correspondingly becoming a great soul, a Mahatma. Hmm? So he says, Mahatma Oh, my friend, he says, Partha. It's a name for Arjuna, the warrior. They're cousins, Krishna and Arjuna. They're very fast uh, friends. Like they have very deep uh, brotherly love for one another. So the name Partha is a name for Arjun uh, in relation to his mother, hmm? whose name was Prita. So Partha means the son of Prita. So he says, "Oh, my dear friend, my my dear son of my aunt, auntie." And he says, hmm, "Dear cousin." I mean, Krishna's speaking Upanishadic wisdom here. He's like the guru. You know, it's like, whoa. But, but if we look at it carefully, we see uh, he wants to get close to, our, to the, his students. He wants to love them like friends, like cousins, like brothers, like lovers. Not to sit up on a chair and everybody worshiping him. He says, that's boring. Hmm. Some people like it, okay, but but what turns me on is something else. Not where the real world is down here and God's in the balcony. I bless you. I condemn you. Hmm? But where God's on the front on the stage when He's to the center. Hmm? That means that there's a possibility for loving and intimacy. Hmm? So he says, Mahatmanas Tumam Partha, O Partha, buddy, he says, pal, Arjun. I want to tell you something. I've talked previously about different types of mystics. I want to tell you, as I'm speaking in this chapter, about whom I consider a Mahatma, Mahatmanas Tumam Partha, a great soul. Daivim Prakritya They move in this world under the influence of my internal shakti, that bhakti is constituted of. It's a power, actually. Hmm? We think that we do bhakti, but bhakti kind of does us. It's more accurate, in a sense. Hmm? It comes on our senses. We hear it from sadhus. We don't even know where we hear it, but that's where it comes from. And then when we pick up the chanting, for example, participate in it, it comes to, after us, so to speak. 
bhakti is very beautiful in, in another sense because in the Hindu uh, spiritual disciplines, there are basically three disciplines for attaining transcendence, enlightenment. There's there is yoga. There is the school of knowledge and the school of love, bhakti. Yoga, jnana, bhakti. Yoga requires, to do it right, certain prerequisites. Like if you studied the Yoga Sutra, there are yamas and niyamas. Right? One of them is brahmacharya. It means celibacy. So he's saying to do the, you had to be celibate to do the path. That's not a popular idea in the yoga world, but uh, it's mentioned in the sutras. Mm-hmm. When Krishna speaks about that type of yoga in the sixth chapter, he also says the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty high qualification. Mm-hmm. Same in the school of jnana. School of jnana, you have to have a pure heart for knowledge to come in. Mm-hmm. Therefore, karma yoga is, is recommended, and then the heart becomes purified, and the knowledge will come in. But bhakti, in contrast, has no prerequisite, no qualification. Hmm? Only one qualification. You have faith in the efficacy of bhakti, you can take it up. Hmm? It speaks about the power of bhakti. She can go into an impure heart and cleanse it. Hmm? It doesn't say, first cleanse your heart, then do bhakti. Bhakti can do that. That's a small thing for her. She she can she can overwhelm Krishna. Radha is Bhakti Devi, the goddess of Bhakti, hmm? the personification of the highest ideal of devotion, and she has Krishna wrapped around her finger. Hmm? That is Radha. Hmm? Bhakti, in other words, can take the absolute, who's omnipresent, everywhere, and therefore can't move, and make him move. Dance, in fact, hmm? like a puppet almost. Hmm? The power of, of bhakti. Hmm? He knows everything. Bhakti can make him forget himself. He has to forget himself if he's to get very close to us. Because if he's omniscient and gets very close, how can he get close? How can the infinite get close to the finite unless the infinite takes on a finite-like appearance? And the point is that bhakti has the power to dethrone the Godhead, so to speak, bring him down to us. It's the Achilles heel of the Absolute. I said the other night, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. If you love, if you approach the absolute with love, he cannot. What can he do? <laughs> he has to give himself, because in bhakti you don't want anything else. You're just giving for the sake of giving. So he 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 becomes purchased by bhakti. It has great power. So the cleansing of the heart that might be done by different types of austerities and fasting and this and that and this abstaining without doing that do bhakti which is easy it's easy to do kirtan hmm? right and it's nice it's even pleasing to the ears hmm? and the mind before we realize what it's doing to ourself hmm? so he says there are people in this world under the influence of bhakti. They are not under the influence of karma. They may look like they are. They do similar things. They're not just sitting. They're cooking. Hmm? They're growing. Hmm? They're riding. Hmm? But these things are, are now a different kind of movement. Movement out of fullness. They're all in, in expressions of how wonderful Krishna is. Hmm. How wonderful their experience of the absolute 
is in the context of bhakti. They're seeing a face of the Absolute that you won't see by yoga. You'll see a face, and it will be transcendent. Hmm? By jnana, you'll see a face. You'll see the omniscient aspect of the Absolute. But in bhakti, you see the... Which it's just common sense. You see the charming aspect. Hmm? Very charming. Hmm? Captivate the heart. Hmm? So he says... In this world, there are people, I call them Mahatmas, great souls, and they're moving under the influence of bhakti, and I he said, am moved by them. Wherever bhakti goes, I have to go. I cannot, I cannot, I cannot, I'm controlled, but wherever bhakti goes, I have to go there. Bhakti goes from the heart of a sadhu, expressing bhakti, the name of Krishna comes on the tongue. It vibrates the tongue. And from there it goes into our ear. Hmm? Even if we weren't listening. Hmm? And it doesn't go out the other ear. Because hmm? it was sent from a heart to a heart. It goes in the ear and stealthily enters the heart around which we've made high walls and locked doors to protect it. Hmm? Just like you listen to me talk with your intelligence. Maybe. Mm, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, I'll let that in. I'm not going to let that. I'm not sure. But if I can speak from my heart enough, I can arrest your intelligence and then you just let it go in your heart. Hmm? Then we have a heart-to-heart exchange and bhakti goes from the sadhu's heart into into our heart and starts to bring about a change hmm? for the better even without our fully understanding it. Hmm? It's a spiritual kind of transmission. This is a form of kirtan. Hmm? Kirtan involves chanting and hearing. Hmm? There's nam kirtan like we did. This is also a form of kirtan, explaining the Gita. Hmm? So he says, there are people like this in the world. Hmm? This is what they do. Hmm? And here's what else they do. Satatam kirtayantumam. They're always doing kirtan. They're moving under bhakti, and, and that means they're always doing kirtan about me, some form of kirtan about me. Satatam means always. Hmm? That means in any circumstance, in all circumstance, which also speaks about the power and efficacy of bhakti, because you can't do all kinds of yoga in all circumstances. You can even do bhakti in your sleep. You can dream about Krishna. Hmm? You can chant in your sleep. It's possible. In just in in dreams, if you chant, you know, lo, lo, for the most part, what you dream about is what you do in the day. Hmm? Right? And it will have efficacy, power. You can't do Ashtanga yoga in your sleep, <laughs> just to give an example. And it's a good practice, but uh, the, the idea here is satatam. It can be done anywhere, at any time, hmm? in any place, by someone who's, who's, who's even not in the human form of life, can hear the kirtan, can taste the food offered to Krishna, the prasad, hmm? and be... That's a form of bhakti to taste the to take the remnants of of, of Krishna. Hmm? It's pretty, so it's, it's what the verse is saying. Satatam. It's it's universal. It can be done anywhere, anytime, any circumstances. Speaking about its its user friendliness, if you will, hmm? and its power. Right? It doesn't require any prerequisite. In fact, it kind of goes after us. It's rather rather. Um, an, an aggressive lover, if you will, to capture us, even even without our, our knowing, so to speak. It said, "Nam namakari bahuda nidisarga shakti tattarbita niyamita smarane nakala." There are many names of Krishna, powered by his sh- internal shakti, and there are no hard and fast rules for chanting them. Hmm? At any time, any place, it can be chanted. So, verses saying the same thing here. Satatam, kirtayantaman. My devotees 
They're always doing. They're they're like living drums. Something that they're always. Their hearts are beating always for me. Hmm? They're always speaking about me. Some people say words cannot. Do justice to the absolute. In fact, the Upanishads say that hmm? that the Godhead is that from which trying to rise to words return, thought returns by words by thought. We cannot do justice to that. Hmm? So some people take that to mean therefore we should be silent. Hmm? But our explanation is. Words cannot do justice, therefore there's never enough that could be said. Hmm? There's never enough kirtan that could be, could be done to adequately describe one, one aspect of Krishna. I mean, the stories about Krishna, the sadhus in our tradition have written books about his feet. A book about his, it's not a foot fetish, but a book about his toenails. I mean, they, with such detail, they describe their mystical darshan, internal experience. Hmm? With, uh, uh, there's a, in other words, Krishna is a real person, and comparatively, we're an imagination. The personality that we have, I'm Costa Rican, again, I'm American, I'm this or I'm that, that is imaginary. Hmm? That will be deconstructed. And as it is deconstructed in the context of of kirtan, for example, then the, a real person will come into view. Hmm? You know, Krishna has love life with Radha. It's a transcendental eroticism, just to help you appreciate the point I'm making. So a person asked me once, you know, I'd like to know, Swami, in private, if I may, in the leela of Krishna with Radha, there's these stories of their romanticism. But what I was wondering is if there's any real sex life there. You know, I mean, real sex life between Radha and Krishna. And I said, no, you don't understand. There's no real sex life here. It's only a facsimile that never works and doesn't doesn't quite make it and, and really disturbs the mind. Hmm. It's all, our movements here are all self-centered to one extent or another. As much as we are identified with the body, the body-mind complex imposes perceived needs upon us. We have to meet them. So we're at, we're kind of moving on empty, trying to fulfill needs, so we're kind of taking from one another. And love is not about taking, it's about giving, right? Hmm? So there there's only giving. When there's no taking, then there's no problem. Krishna is human-like. You've got to make underscore the like. Human-like, but that's very good. It means a form of the Absolute that you can get close to, but it is the Godhead. His realm is completely transcendental. Discussions about explanations of the Leela, Krishna with cows, with friends. So we, we can... It's very nice because that's what our life is like. We have friends, animals, this, and, and so you can make this emotional bond can come about just by hearing the leelas. When you hear about God is acting like us, we go, "Hey, that's cool. He's <laughs> like us. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I know what it, I, I know what it mean, what that means. Right? I feel like that too when I'm with a friend or with a lover, and and so you bond with Krishna in ways that you can't really with others like with the Buddha. You can't really bond emotionally. With the Jesus figure, the sacrificial, you know, uh, son, you can kind of bond with the emotions of guilt. You, oh, he did that. Oh God, I, you know, if you watch, uh, and he lives nearby here too. Um, what's his name? Gibson. Mel Gibson's movie. But this is a story, <laughs> a little different. A fellow once said to me, I said, you know, you should read this book. It's called Srimad Bhagavatam. I was talking with the fellow. He said, why should I read that book? I have another book. And it speaks about the, what did he say? 
the social life of God. You know, I've told a story before. The social life of God. I said, whoa, that's a pretty interesting topic. God has a social life. Uh, I said, I thought that too. And I said, what book are you talking about? He said, it's the Bible. He has a son. And his son is, you know, one son is God. And I said, well, you might want to read this. He's got, he got buddies too. <laughs> he got, he got lovers. He's got all parents. He's got all kinds of things. <laughs> so that's what our book is about. The, the social life of God on 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 steroids, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a realm of interaction there. That's uh, a, a, a multitude of possibilities, and so and all these possibilities come to the fore in the context of kirtan. He says, "Satatam kirtayantomam." My devotees, they always do kirtan, and they do it sincerely, and they make commitments to their to their to chant so many times on their mala in a day, to observe different days like the birthday of Krishna. They observe, they fast on that day, and the other observances that they we have certain practices as such. So they make commitments to these things. They're determined. They do these things. It means sincerely. Yatantas means they move around looking for good association, for sadhu sangha, to associate with sadhus, enter the kirtan with them, to, to see their deity on the altar, worship with them. They, they, this is what, how they, the kind of association they like. To be brief and bring it uh, rather extended discussion to a close tonight, they enter into a dynamic loving union with me through the vehicle of this uh, kirtan. And the kirtan doesn't end then. Kirtan is the way and it is, it is the means too. It takes a different shape in the context of the lila. But that is what the Gita says about Kirtan. Hari Kirtan ki jai. Sri Sri Dalji Gopal ki jai. Was the time? Usually we stop at that time. So with your permission, we'll stop there and honor some prasad. Sri Sri Dalji Gopal ki jai. Kodi Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Hare Krishna Mahamantra ki jai. Oh. Yeah.